with Coming Out Ministries, we, we take a kind of a three-pronged approach in our ministry. Number one, we want to inspire the church with our testimonies about the love and compassion and power of Jesus Christ uh, to fulfill his mission. You know, when you hear people say, um, you, you hear the term once gay, always gay. What does that say about the power of God? Does that not indicate he's rather impotent rather than omnipotent? If God condemns a behavior, which he does in numerous places in the Bible um, on this issue, but not just this issue, there are many issues he calls abomination. If he condemns it, I'm convinced that he must have the power to do something about it. What kind of a God would condemn something that he can't do anything about? So the whole term once gay, always gay just flies in the face of logic and reason and the Christian belief in the omnipotence of our Savior. Um, so we have learned that, um, well, one of our favorite passages is Revelation 12:11 that talks about how we overcome Satan, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimonies. And we have found that our testimonies really are... are um, our most powerful presentations maybe. And I wondered about that for a while. I can understand the blood of the lamb, that would be Jesus Christ. But why the, the, the word of my testimony? And then I realized <clears throat> that the apostle Paul talked about Satan who transforms himself into an angel of light, uh, truth. You know, Satan does a lot of deception with truth. Have you ever noticed that? Um, Abraham, you know, he said, she is my sister. Well, it was a half-truth. It was true. It was a half-truth. It wasn't even a half-truth. It was a half-truth because she was his half-sister. <laughs> but more than that, she was his wife. So it wasn't even a half-truth. What he said was true, but it was not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so Satan can tell the story of Jesus probably better than I can. He's been around a lot longer, has a lot more practice. And the text goes on to say, therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. There are many ministers that can bring people, you've seen them in these mega churches, bringing people weeping to the altar to give their lives to Jesus because of the, the blood of the lamb story. These same ministers, when asked, well, what about the law of God? What about the Sabbath? What about the Ten Commandments? Oh, don't worry about that. God, you know, Jesus did it all. The law was nailed to the cross, on and on and on. What is the word of their testimony? What do you think the word of Satan's testimony is? Even though he could tell a good story, can he demonstrate, does he demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ to redeem and to restore? And I believe... And our ministry believes that the plan of salvation is about restoring us to God's original plan. And that's why in the last days, God has brought his people kind of full circle back to, uh, well, we've all heard about the book from Eden to Eden, you know, bringing us back. And the wonderful gift of the spirit of prophecy, we believe, was given to us to prepare a people for translation. And so we have more light revealed to us today than any generation that has ever lived before us as God is working 
to bring his people around to his original plan. And for that to work, we have to believe in it before it can happen. So I want to share with you my testimony this evening. I'm going to try to be, um, Michael, don't laugh, but I'm going to try to be brief. I really am. Because a lot of our stories, you know, are parallel. And there are things that I may skip over because they're very similar to Michael's. And so you've heard that this evening already. But um, there are so many parallels with gay people. We have found, uh, when I wrote my first book and, I, and uh, I had a gay person come to me that was then converted and is now married and has children. And I was just praising the Lord that God made women. <laughs> and he really under, never really understood the role of man and woman before. And, um, and so uh, the, he, he said, you wrote my story. When I read your book, you really wrote my story. Well, he lives in Mexico City. Uh, but, but he found the, the parallels in our stories. It's almost like um, Satan doesn't have a real big bag of tricks. I mean, if something works, he does it over and over and over again. But anyway, I, I want to share with you um, my story as briefly as I can. My dad was a dairy farmer, and uh, he was uh, married when he was 17. He was a father when he was 18, and he pro proceeded to father six children. So I was one of six siblings. I was number four out of six. That's a terrible place to be. You know, right? Lost in the middle. You have the apple of daddy's eye, which is number one son. And then you have the little baby girl who is number six, the baby, you know, and everyone in between. Yet this is my perception, right? I don't think it's true. We have five children. I don't feel that way towards our children, but I felt that way towards myself being lost in the middle. But my parents moved to this big, beautiful farm in, in uh, Bahalia, Mississippi. And my dad was uh, the, he, he ran this dairy farm. I was four years old at the, at the time there when one of the farm hands working for my dad um, had some time with me privately and sexually molested me. Now, up until the time I was four, I never had a sexual thought. Children don't think sexually, as we've already heard this evening. We don't think sexually as children. If a child is thinking, speaking, acting out sexually, that is a red flag. That child has been introduced to sexual behavior because it does not come normally uh, at that age because the child is not mature enough physically, you know, or mentally, emotionally, or even spiritually to deal with such a thing. And I wasn't. But so up until that day I'd happened, I never had a sexual thought. But from that day forward, I never lived a day without sexual thinking, fantasies, wild imaginations, because what happened to me was not unpleasant. I just knew it was wrong. I felt guilty. I felt ashamed. I felt dirty. Um, and, and I was the victim. But that's I understand, is not uncommon for victims to feel responsible and guilty. And, and certainly, I like to say I was robbed of my manhood because it was an older, to me it was a man, turned out he was an older teenager, but I was four years old. And I was robbed of my manhood, my man-child um, experience by being 
put into that passive uh, position and what have you. Uh, so, but I internalized it. I didn't tell a living soul. I didn't have the type of relationship with my parents where I felt comfortable talking to them about such things. Um, again, much like Michael's, my dad was very busy on the farm. He was, he was there, but, but uh, not very real accessible. I found much more uh, to relate to with my mother. Even though I had two brothers and three sisters, my two brothers were older. But not long after this incident, I developed a bedwetting problem. And I think, looking back on it, that because I was not dealing with an emotional traumatic experience or whatever, my, uh, uh, I had a physical reaction to where I lost control of my bladder. My dad began to punish me when I would wet the bed. That only made things worse to where I would start losing control playing in school, out on the playground. And uh, that brought a lot of teasing and mocking and shame and all of that. So I grew up feeling uh, inadequate as a man-child, uh, unloved by my father who was abusive towards me. He, was, he told me years later he was just trying to shame me into stop being lazy. He thought I was being lazy. They even took me to a doctor when I was nine years old, five years later. And the doctor examined and told my parents, there's nothing wrong with his bladder, his kidneys, the kid's just lazy. So that my dad just doubled down. So I grew up, uh, just to be concise, I grew up hating my father because I felt unloved, unaccepted, abused. Uh, I was afraid of him. And, um, and to make matters even worse, I started playing the piano when I was five years old. My brothers were both, they grew up being very mechanical and they liked guns and loud straight pipes on cars and motorcycles and all of those things. I have all of that stuff now and enjoy it. See, I've grown into my manhood. <laughs> but back then, I didn't like noise, I liked music. And so in an effort to be accepted and to get approval, um, I really worked at music and I found acceptance that way, uh, not necessarily within the family, but, you know, in school and, and uh, applause or, you know, um, and it was, a, it was a good thing for me to help me kind of fit in somewhat. But I did grow up being teased, like Michael said, because of uh, various things uh, in behavior. But one thing was I was not real good at contact sports like baseball and football. But I sure did. I sure could run. <laughs> and that was a good thing. I could outrun my, my athletic brother. And um, so I didn't realize, but I was good in some kinds of sports, but not those kinds of sports. And I was more creative. My brothers were more macho, and I was more creative and artistic. And we have since learned in our ministry, manhood comes in a spectrum. You have gentlemen, you have macho men, you have everything in between, and they're still perfectly men. Uh, not all men. Could you imagine if every man was macho and had to be number one macho man in the church? Uh, no, we've got a spectrum. And same with women. You have women who are very creative and, and um, uh, very feminine. You have some women who are more uh, tomboyish. And it has nothing to do with sexual attraction. It's just a spectrum. But what happens so many times is 
the ones that, that kind of stand out being a little different get bullied through ridicule and mocking and teasing and rejection. And every gay person that, that I've known tends to deal with this perception of rejection. And I grew up in grade, through grade school feeling that, being alienated from the boys who teased and mocked me and refused to select me for their teams when we were choosing sides for sports. And to make matters even worse than that, um, one of the older high school boys uh, took advantage of me and continued the sexual molestation for quite a period of time. Turned out to be the pastor's son, uh, actually. But uh, once a victim, I think it's easy to be victimized again and again and again. And so I grew up not knowing how to say no, and uh, I wanted to be loved, I wanted to be accepted. And so in my mind, I was very troubled and confused. But at the same time, I was a very spiritual child. Being musical, by the time I was 12 years old, I was church pianist in our little church in Mississippi. And um, it kept me involved in church. I loved church. I loved being active in church. And so though I had this confusion in my head that I never told a living soul about, um, I still was very spiritual. And I hope you understand that. You can have, be having a very strong struggle in your life with something and still love the Lord and be spiritual. And we find in our academies, there are young people just... Everywhere we go, we find young people that are dealing with these LGBT issues, but they have chosen to go to a Christian school. And like, like myself, I wanted answers. I wanted to be around spiritual people. I wanted to be involved in church, but I didn't know how to resolve the issues that had developed in my head. By the time I was reaching puberty, at the time when you're supposed to start thinking about sexual intimacy and attractions to the opposite gender, I already had at least eight years of, of thinking in a different direction because of my abuse. But um, I also studied real hard to be uh, top of the class. I mean, it, I, I liked the, um, to be an overachiever because it also brought me more acceptance and attention. My older brother, a year older, um, he was a year bigger, a year stronger, a year better looking and, and, and a year smarter. Today I joke with him and said, you're still a year older and <laughs> that's it. But anyway, he could sit in school all day long, goof off, never crack a book and make straight A's. And I thought, well, that ain't fair. <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, but I wouldn't be outdone. So I studied and I also made straight A's. So I graduated from the eighth grade as valedictorian. I went on to high school. And um, interestingly, when I went away to high school, I had no more of that abuse that I had in grade school. No more molestation, no more ridicule, no more mocking and teasing. And I had been, I was two weeks at the high school and I realized I haven't wet the bed since I've been here. It's hard for me to admit this, but I was wetting the bed all the way up until I left home as a teenager, 15 years old. And then it quit. My dad wasn't around. I wasn't being abused. I wasn't being mocked and teased and made fun of, but the damage had already been done. And so in my mind, my mind was set in a certain direction and I didn't know how to deal with it. 
But I praise the Lord for Little Creek Academy, where I went through school. Um, and I was very well received there. I was I incorporated very well in with the whole student body. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. And most, I'll have to say, most of what I do today, I learned at Little Creek Academy. I mean, I'm a concert musician with a marimba. I picked up all of that in an uh, in academy. Uh, my typing skills and all of that. Uh, I've written several books. And, and all of this stuff I learned before college. Now, I did go to college and I got a degree in theology and went headlong into the gay life after that. But I jumped ahead a little bit of my, uh, in my story there. But when I went on to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I, uh, I, whoops. I was working my way through by making Little Debbie Nutty Bars. I don't know if you've ever heard of such a thing, but Nutty Bars was my thing. And, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't keep ahead of my bill. My parents had moved to Collegedale to provide housing, room and board. That was the best they could do, but it was up to me to earn my way through school with loans and, and work. And I couldn't keep up. And in my sophomore year, I had to drop out of school because of finances. And that's a story in and of itself. But um, when shortly after being uh, uh, dropping out of school that sophomore year, I was drafted into the military. That was during the days of Vietnam. And I went through all of the, the conscientious objector training, medic and, and all of that, and went to an advanced training in, as a surgical tech. And uh, so I spent my career in the military as a surgical tech, which was something that, um, that I used later when I was out of the military. But also while I was in the military, I was stationed in South Korea rather than Vietnam. And I got acquainted with a group of student missionaries from La Sierra College. I was from the South. I thought they all talked funny. You know, they were all from La Sierra in California. And uh, they were teaching English. And I thought, how are those guys going to teach English? They can't even speak proper Southern slang, you know. Um, but I was fascinated with their program. And I began to get very involved in their program on Sabbath, playing the piano for their Sabbath school and church services. And, and I was able to be discharged in South Korea from the military and join that group. And it was a lot of fun. I, I just really enjoyed teaching English and Bible. We had like 1,400 students at a time uh, during that, that first school there in Seoul, Korea. And, and I like to tell this part of the story because I was the only Southerner um, that was teaching, but you know, no matter how much you love your work, doesn't it sometimes get tedious? Even in ministry, it can become a little tedious and you, you look for ways to be creative and liven things up and do things differently. And I thought, I'm just gonna teach my students how to speak Southern with a Southern accent. <laughs> can you imagine my students going down the hall? Hi, y'all, y'all come back now, you hear? And by y'all, it was the most, it was just hilarious to hear my Korean students <laughs> speaking with a Southern accent and Southern slang, but I loved it. Anyway, I, I was asked shortly after that to go South. <laughs> now the director of the school said um, they needed someone to direct a new school they had in South Thailand. Isn't that interesting? From South Korea to South Thailand, right on the Malay border, about as far south as you could go in Thailand. But 
So I spent another 14 months teaching English and Bible and running this, this school in South Thailand. And I was just hooked on mission. I, there again, I told you I was a spiritual child, a spiritual teenager, a spiritual student, now a spiritual teacher. And by the end of my time there, I was invited to go to Cambodia to start a new school in Phnom Penh. But I decided, no, I need to go back and finish college. I need to get my degree. And, uh, and it's a good thing I did because right after I left Thailand and went back to Southern Missionary College at the time, uh, Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge and they had the killing fields and all of that. And I would have been in that country. But I decided, you know, what I want to do with my life, now I have direction with education. I want to be a medical missionary. So I enrolled in pre-med and theology. And, and I was back in school and I had the GI Bill, plus I was a surgical tech and I could make a living and I could earn my way and, and, and get through school. But you know, even though I was a theology student and preparing for a life of mission service, I did not have resolution to the confusion in my head. Does that make sense to you? I didn't have my answers. So I decided, you know, I like the text where God says in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. It's one of my very favorite texts of scripture. And so I started reasoning. I thought, you know, I've got the perfect solution. If I just get married, it'll take care of everything. What do you think? All of you that are married, does marriage take care of your, is it the solution to the problems of life? Or is it the beginning <laughs> to a life of problems you never even imagined? I mean, it can be. If you're not married to the right person, young people that are not married, I hope you're listening to me. Don't you ever look at marriage as a solution to anything, right? If you're not married to the right person for the right reasons, with a blessing of God, and with the right chemistry, am I right? Then you're, you're, you're not, should not be married, at least to that person. I thought marriage would be the perfect solution. And so I, I married one of those funny talking Southern California girls and took her to Mississippi and Tennessee to learn to speak with a Southern accent. Anyway, um, I thought that that would be a perfect solution. She was a Christian. I chose to have a Christian wife, to have a Christian home, to make Christian babies. We made two Christian babies during our short marriage, to have a Christian education, to train to be a missionary. I had a life full of making good choices. But the confusion was still in my head. In fact, I discovered that I was now more confused than ever because marriage did nothing to take care of the same-sex attraction confusion that was in my head. Uh, as I was preparing for graduation, we were showing pictures of hair at lunch today, right? <laughs> and my son looks at this picture and said, Dad, you've got to be kidding. What were you thinking? And I say, well, look at you, look in the mirror. What are you thinking today? You know, the way you do your hair. But, but you know, anyway, this is my senior picture there at college. And I was um, preparing for graduation. And I was given a call to ministry. And I wasn't prepared for that because I was in pre-med. And I was being asked to join the ministerial team at the Madison Campus Church. 
um, uh, I kind of grew up in the in the self-supporting type uh, work in Madison. I started Madison Academy as a freshman, and then I went to Little Creek Academy, and I've always had this thing for for self-supporting work. In fact, I'll jump ahead a little bit and say my wife is actually the great-granddaughter of E.A. Sutherland, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, I think he had his roots here in Battle Creek, as a matter of fact. And he started with McGann, Madison College and Sanitarium. And um, anyway, that's who my wife is today. But at that time, I was married to this other lady, and, um, and I panicked when I was invited to, to join a pastoral team because I wasn't thinking about being a pastor. Besides, I had been a student and I was one of these late bloomer freshmen, you know, ninth graders in academy. And I was also the mail boy. And I took mail around to all the different offices on campus. And, and I thought, everybody there knows me. They remember me as, I could, as a kid. How could I be a pastor at that big church with all of those professional people? And I panicked. And I just said, no, I, I, I turned down the call because I said, I have one more class in physics and I'm off to medical school. The problem is I didn't pray about it. And I never stopped to realize that I hadn't prayed about it. And I didn't pray about it. In fact, I didn't realize I had actually lost my connection, my spiritual connection with the Lord, because I had reason, you know, to get into medical school. I've got to, I've got to have an A average, which means I've, um, I, you know, I've got to have A's. And so I reasoned, you know, every day in class, we have prayer before class. I'm studying Bible every day. That should suffice. But what I wasn't acknowledging was in doing all of that, I was studying to answer the questions of the professors. But I was not searching for the answers for my soul. And I, I graduated with a degree in theology with honors without the spiritual connection. Do you think that's unusual? Have you ever heard of that before? I've met a number of pastors that say, you know, I relate. Uh, you get so caught up in your education. You can get so busy doing the work of the Lord that you lose your connection with the Lord if you're not careful. So it was having lost that connection with the Lord, no longer being in the Bible classes and everything. It wasn't long after I graduated that I had my fall from grace. And I just gave up on everything. And I fell headlong into uh, gay behavior and gay culture, and, and I'm really racing through the story, but that's all right. The time is racing as well. Um, my wife, of course, was devastated. I told her. I, I was open and honest with her. <clears throat> she was just devastated. She had no clue. No one had a clue. My parents were devastated. My father, um, you know, he he had uh, really come a long ways in his relationship with me and with the Lord during all those years. Um, I I grew up hating the man, but I mean, we became closer and closer as as we both grew older. But my dad, I never realized that he was living through me vicariously. He had always felt called to ministry himself and wanted to be a minister, but he could never afford to go to college because he had six children and he had to provide for them. And when I graduated with that degree in theology with honors, I didn't realize how proud he was. And when I fell into the gay culture and I acknowledged that and I was open about it, 
he was just devastated, absolutely devastated. Of course, my mother was devastated as well, but my father ended up actually having a massive heart attack not long after that. He, was, he could easily have died. The surgeons tried to convince him to have multiple bypass surgery, and even though he didn't even have a high school education, he wasn't, you know, I mean, he was still intelligent. And he said, well, what if I don't have, what's the prognosis? The surgeon says five years. He was 55 years old. And if you have surgery, uh, you probably can live another five years. And um, he said, well, what if I don't have the surgery? Well, now, Mr. Woolsey, if you don't have that surgery, you probably won't live more than five more years. Well, duh. What do you think he did? He checked himself out. He said, I could die on the operating table. I'll take my chances. And so he and my mother decided to go to Uchi Pines in Alabama and immerse themselves in the Adventist health message to see if God could do better than man. So remember, we're going to have a little quiz at the end. So remember those little details. We'll come back to that. But not only did I... Uh, have this weight of guilt and shame because I had now come out openly as gay. You know the term coming out is used by the gay community as coming out of the closet. And so we took the term coming out because the Bible talks about coming out of darkness into his marvelous light. Come out from among them and be separate. Come out from her, my people. So we're trying to redeem the term and give it a better connotation coming out ministries but when i when i came out publicly like that of course my wife you would think wanted to divorce me but no she wanted to forgive she said ron i don't want to lose our family let's work through it she was a christian she felt that we could get through it we could work through it and i give her much much credit for that but she wanted me to go with her to counseling well I didn't feel like talking to other people about the issue. It was devastating to me to even tell her and then to tell my parents and see their reaction. But I thought, well, you know, I owe her that. So we went to counseling together and we went to some very prominent Seventh-day Adventist pastors and counselors and psychiatrists. If I mentioned some of their names, half of you would know who they were because they were that prominent. But you know, in the end, after talking to me for a while and then talking to my wife, they basically said, Mrs. Woolsey, you just need to divorce this man and get on with your life. That kind can never change. Now think about it. With our Seventh-day Adventist message, our message of salvation from sin and the plan of redemption, and even some of the greatest among us do not understand the power of Jesus Christ. And they counseled her, that kind can never change. Do you know how I reacted when I heard that? That, I mean, I felt that way. But when I heard that from people who should have answers, I turned. I became bitter against God. You heard Michael talking about his bitterness and anger. I turned against God. I, I rejected God. I became bitter and angry against the church, and I had no use for pastors. Sorry, Pastor Rob. It's okay, though. I am one now, so <laughs> things change. And I went into the world not only unchangeable, but unreachable. Uh, I wouldn't read anything, watch anything, listen to anything, talk to anybody, go anywhere that had anything to do with religion. I was done. I was done with God, done with all of it. 
Do you know anyone like that? Do you know anyone, are you acquainted with people that seem to be unreachable and unchangeable? Well, I just want to share tonight that our God specializes in reaching the unreachable and changing the unchangeable. And that's a very important point of our message is coming out ministries. Um, I'll save this story till just a little bit later, but um, I went headlong into the gay life, moved to Florida for three years and moved out to Southern California because my wife and, and children, we went through our divorce and, and they lived in Southern California. The little boy in the red shirt is my son. I think he was graduating from eighth grade and I was at his graduation. But I lived most of my gay life, most of it in Southern California, unreachable and unchangeable. What do you do for someone who's unreachable and unchangeable? That's the point that I really want to stress tonight, that, um, that God can go where we cannot go. My parents became the most loving parents. They loved me unconditionally, not just my parents, my family, my, my mother and my father there on the left, my sister, my little bitty grandmother, and my brother and, and his wife. They loved me unconditionally. And they prayed for me. And I didn't really stop to think about it. I found out later how much they, they prayed for me. They never stopped praying. This is something that Mike and I and our, our ministry have in common. We had people that never stopped praying. They did not give up in their intercession. They loved me unconditionally. My parents, were, with, because my dad's heart attack, he was disabled at the age of 55. They never could afford to really travel or, you know, very much. They lived now in Mississippi. I lived in Southern California. Somehow they found a way to get out to California almost every year to spend time with their prodigal son. And um, so they stayed with me in my home and with my friends. They loved me. They loved us. And it was genuine. My friends were very impressed with my parents' love for them and how easy they could could mingle. But isn't that what Jesus did? He mingled with the people. He won their confidence and their trust. And then he offered solutions and showed them the way. And when my parents left, the third thing, there were three things. They loved unconditionally. They prayed without ceasing and they became forgetful. So write that down in your notes. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. Every time my parents left, they left something behind. And I would find it after it was too late and they were gone. Like under my pillow one time, there's this big, beautiful Bible. Had a nice note in it before they forgot and left it behind. <laughs> uh, they knew I would not receive anything. I was unreachable. So they just decided to become forgetful. On another trip, there was a, a nine-volume set they left behind. Can you believe that? On another trip, there was a five-volume set. On another trip, the story of redemption. Another trip, the steps to Christ. I knew what they were doing. We didn't talk about it. I never tell them anything about what I found because I knew what was going on. And um, can you see what the Lord was doing? He was setting me up because he knew I would not go to counseling or therapy or to a pastor that I wouldn't go to a church, I wouldn't do any of that. He was implanting it in my home. 
And I didn't have the heart to throw any of it away because these were hardbound books and nice quality and, and they were tokens of love. And so there they were in my home for years until the Lord finally realized, I think, that now's the time to act. So one night I had this terrible dream. And in that dream, it was, it was my life was passing before me and it was not like from my childhood to the present, it was my present life. My life, it turned out, my dream was so chock full of stuff. As I look back on it, the Lord was showing me all the things I was doing to jam the signal where he could not speak to me, or I couldn't listen, I couldn't hear him. I was, and please don't be laughing, but I was a dancer, I was a dance instructor, started with ballroom, went to country western, and went, it all went downhill from there. But anyway, I really enjoyed dancing because up until then, you know, I, I grew up as a church musician and I couldn't do any of that in the nightclubs where I hung out, but I could sure learn to dance and teach dance and be involved. So I was around music all the time. I got into inline skating. I was a party animal. I took up hang gliding in Southern California and um, really enjoyed that kind of sport. Made me feel a little bit more manly, you know. My brothers would never take up hang gliding. They were afraid of stuff like that. And so... I had one up on them, right? Um, bicycling, but then there was also work in the mix. I did have a job, but my life was so chocked full of activity. There was no time and, and no way to listen to the Lord. So um, the signal was constantly being jammed. And then the scene in that dream changed. Things kind of lit up and this picture just does not show up on a graphic, but I looked up and there was Jesus coming in the clouds of glory and I was lost. It was a horrible nightmare. I was terrified when I realized time was over and I was lost. And suddenly I woke up and I remember sitting in that beautiful darkness. And I say that, I mean it, the beautiful darkness. I was not facing Jesus in the clouds of glory as a lost person. And I remember saying, thank God, it was just a dream. That became a recurring nightmare. Not every night, every week, or every month, but it became a recurring dream to the point that, um, uh, well, it went on for about three years. You know, uh, who was it, Jonah, three days, three nights? <laughs> for me, three years, but that's kind of prophetic or biblical, a day for a year. But about three years later, I remember coming to my senses and I remember thinking, you know, I can keep on blaming God and everybody else till Jesus does come in those clouds of glory. I'm still lost. Blaming is self-justification. It's not solving anything. It's trying to pacify yourself and drown out your guilt and shame and responsibility and accountability. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to look for answers. Um, I'm not studying for a degree. I'm going to study for my survival. I was on a downward spiral to destruction. During the AIDS crisis and all that, a lot of my friends died of AIDS. Um, it's amazing to me that all of us in this ministry, we came out of that life, none of us were tainted by HIV or AIDS. I think the Lord had a plan. I remember driving home, arriving home, closing nightclubs at night, driving two hours to get home, you know, just struggling and struggling to stay awake to get home, never got a ticket, never had an accident, and I was drunk. And, and I don't recommend that kind of life I was living, but the Lord was protecting me, and I know he's protecting me for a reason. 
I decided to look for answers and I started researching my life and I started connecting the dots and, and things began to fall into place. I wasn't born gay. I was conditioned to be gay. It wasn't logical that I was born gay. My parents weren't gay. Their parents weren't gay. Their parents weren't gay. Where would it come from? And every gay person has a father and a mother somewhere, even if it's in a dish, petri dish. It's a father, a male gene, um, you know, the male sperm and the female egg. It, it didn't make sense. And then as I've studied more about it, there is no, it is not a genetic issue. People are not born gay, but we'll talk about that later. So just using that logic, I decided to start searching for answers. And I went, where do you think I went? I went to my Left Behind series, and I pulled out that big, beautiful Bible, and I looked at it, and it was, I, I just couldn't concentrate to read the Bible. Um, I, I'll only use the King James Version, because that's what I grew up with, and, and the other versions kind of confuse the memory, mess it all up. So I stick with the King James, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't um, relate to it at the time. So I went and looked through that collection. And then there's that little book. I thought, I'll start with the little one. You know which one that is? The little one. Short chapters, small book, big letters, maybe. I, I couldn't concentrate to read that either. So I said, I've got to do something. I, you know, I want to read and find answers. So I did something I do not recommend, but this is who I was and where I was. I, I sat down with a margarita in one hand I lit up a cigarette in the other, and I opened a page one, Steps to Christ. And that's how I started my journey back. You know, the Lord meets you where you are. I was on page one, and I thought, this ain't right, as we say in the South. This ain't right. But Lord, I didn't leave you over alcohol. I didn't leave you over cigarettes. These are new vices, and they really don't have that much of a grip on me. I want the answers to what tore us apart in the first place. You show me that, and then we'll come back to the cigarettes and the margaritas. And I think the Lord's, I, I, I just picture him saying, okay, we'll try it that way. Got to chapter five, and I was putting out a perfectly good cigarette. <laughs> the chapter on consecration. I could not be smoking and drinking and reading the word of God by the time I got to chapter five of 13 in Steps to Christ. Friends, there's power in the word of God. There's recreative power. There was conviction and there was power. And I, I, I won't take the time to read what I was reading in chapter 5. I'm going to encourage you to read it. But let me just summarize it by saying that God's plan for my life far exceeded anything I could even imagine for myself. And, and it made sense. It was logical. Again, come now, let us reason together, God said. As I was reading Steps to Christ, we were reasoning together. I can make any excuse I wanted, and he'll listen. But then he wants to, to, you know, he wants to take part in the conversation. In fact, I think he likes to have the last word. What do you think? <laughs> and I couldn't argue with God's logic that I was finding in the word of God. It all made sense. And so reading on through, reading about Jesus being tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. I realize temptation is not sin, or Jesus would have been the chiefest of sinners, not Ron Wolsey and the Apostle Paul, right? So I learned, don't identify yourself by your temptations. People come to me and say, oh, are you ever tempted that way anymore? I said, wait a minute. I was baptized February 7, 1992. Satan wasn't, right? 
I can control the direction I'm going. I can choose my orientation. Don't let anyone tell you that orientation is an innate thing. I was a pilot. My newest book is called Navigating the Storms, and it's about flying and making the applications to uh, the storms of Satan, tailwinds, headwinds, and all of that. You choose the direction you're going, and you make every correction that you need to make to land safely at your destination. So don't let anyone tell you that your temptations has anything to do with defining who you are. Or you're going to have to make that same application to Jesus. And I learned that, I reasoned that, and I thought, you know, this all makes sense. Jesus suffered being tempted. He resisted unto blood, striving against temptation. Then 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So many wonderful scriptures that told me, Ron, you can be changed. When they say that kind can never change, they don't understand the power of God. And I was not even a Christian, and I began to understand the power of God. And just again, racing forward, I finally made a decision for Jesus Christ. But I was in a relationship for life. It was my third lifetime, fourth lifetime relationship. <laughs> like a cat with nine lives, I was number four. But I realized I've got to end this relationship. How do you do that when you love someone and you're committed to life? Well, through my study, I learned to love Jesus more. And when I learned to love Jesus more than my relationship, that's when I could make the move. It was still traumatic. It was just as traumatic as my divorce from my wife years earlier. Um, but it was doable because I loved Jesus more and I followed my heart with my heart being connected with, with Jesus. And so I left Southern California, left basically everything behind. I moved in with my parents in Arkansas, who had retired there in Arkansas, 40 years old. Interesting, Mike came back at 40. I came back at 40. I moved in with my parents at 40. How humiliating is that? No job and no money. But then I realized first time I was born, I had no job, no money. Being born again, no job, no money. Makes sense. So I moved in with them until I could get my act together and immediately felt a call to ministry. And I thought, how in the world could someone like me be in ministry? I don't have a very good resume to take to the conference office, but I couldn't escape that compulsion. So I read about the demoniacs in Gadara, how Jesus, the day they were converted, the day they were delivered, he sent them off as missionaries his, uh, to the land of Decapolis. Go home to your friends, he said, and tell them. I wrote out my testimony, short three pages or so, and mailed it to everyone that I knew. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from my best friend from high school. We had left the church together. He went one direction, I went another. If any two people were never going to make it to heaven, he was the other one. That's the way I looked at it. But he said, Ron, I'm reading your letter and I'm impressed. He said, you know, it's time for me to come back too. And he did. And he went into ministry in Florida and still lives in Florida. We left the church together. We came back at the same time. And my letter was something that really helped uh, bring him in. And I realized that the Lord could use me in some way. So I gave a copy of my testimony to my dad, still living at the time. 
And immediately I heard him chuckling as he was reading my testimony. I, my curiosity got the best of me and I had to interrupt and say, Dad, why are you laughing at my testimony? He said, oh, look here, Ron, right here you wrote, the Lord gave me no rest, day or night. I said, what's so funny about that? This is serious. He said, for 16 years, your mother and I prayed the Lord would give you no rest, day or night. Here's our prayer on page one and the answer, you know, through your testimony. This was the man who I felt I had devastated when I became gay, came out as gay. And here he's laughing for joy. You see, God's way does not cause pain. God's way brings joy and comfort and peace. And it was so um, affirming to me that my father was still living and he lived to see the answer to his prayers. And, and he was joyful. I began to pray more because I couldn't escape the call to ministry. And I'm going to go through this very quickly to wind this up. Prayer number one, Lord, if you want me to be in ministry, you'll have to make it happen. I will just commit wherever, you ask, wherever I'm asked to go, I'll go. You ever hear of that prayer before? Wasn't it William Miller that prayed something like that? I knew about that. And then I also read in the Bible about double portions of the Holy Spirit. And I prayed, Lord, if I'm going to be in ministry, please give me a double portion of your Holy Spirit. I want to redeem the time I wasted all those years. I thought, you know, 16 years in the gay life. I don't know that, that I have 16 years before the Lord returns, but I want a double portion so that I can redeem those 16 years. It's been 30 now. But anyway, um, then for some reason I prayed, Lord, would you ever trust me again with family? I was right out of the gay life. I had no inclination whatsoever. Uh, in that direction, you know, physically, sexually, attraction-wise, but I gave it to the Lord, and I remembered how precious it was to hold my little children when they were babies, and, and the pain when I lost them. And I asked the Lord, would you ever trust me with family again, even though I felt that it was impossible, humanly speaking, but I turned it over to the Lord. And then the fourth thing I prayed, would you restore the gift of music? I've now hung up my dancing shoes. I need music in my life. I used to be a church musician. Would you restore that gift of music that I squandered all those years? To answer those prayers, the very night I was baptized, I was asked to preach the next weekend. And that was 30 years ago. The Lord was just waiting for my baptism. I wouldn't be baptized because I was for for about six months because I was still smoking. And I knew I needed to get over this before I'm baptized. I need to bring forth free fruit, meat for repentance. So I finally quit smoking, praise God. And I was baptized in that very night. It's like the Lord said, okay, now let's get on with it. And I was launched into ministry that very night and was in the pulpit somewhere almost every Sabbath for the last 30 years um, until I even got into working with our conference for uh, about 25 years or so. Um, so the second prayer was about a double portion of the Holy Spirit. We were having a camp meeting at this little church. This delegation had come to me and said, Ron, would you come to back to Arkansas, help us start a church and be our lay pastor? And I started to balk and they said, has somebody else already asked you? I said, no. 
Then you belong to us, they said. You belong to us. They had heard about my commitment to going wherever I was asked to go. I said, oh, well, you got a good point. So I went back to the Ozark Mountains, helped start this church out in the this northwest corner of the, of the state. And a year later, we were having this camp meeting. There was a fellow that came to me at the camp meeting, and he said, uh, Pastor Ron, he looked at me kind of funny. If God can save you, he can save anybody. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? And then he told me what he'd been hearing. There was somebody at the camp meeting gossiping about Pastor Ron, thinking that they knew all of my past and all that, which I had never talked about. Um, in telling my testimony, I talked about being redeemed from a life of self-destruction and degradation. That covers a wide range of options, doesn't it? But this guy was gossiping about me, so the gossiper was talking about Ron Woolsey. The gossipy was hearing about the power of Jesus Christ. So the gossipy came to me and said, if God can save you, he can save anybody. And when I heard that, I had to agree, yeah, it's true. He can even save you. <laughs> and he said, would you baptize me at the end of the camp meeting? I call that the gospel according to gossip. Isn't that a good title? Because I hadn't preached to him. I hadn't given him Bible studies. It was the way, you know, if the Lord can speak through a donkey, he can speak through a gossiper. And he got the message across to this young man. At the end of the camp meeting, I baptized him and about 12 other people. And as I was turning to leave the baptismal pool, I heard motion in the water behind me. And I turned around and my dad was standing there fully dressed saying, baptize me too. I was shocked and I started to question, but it's not a good idea to argue with your dad in a baptismal pool. So I got it. He wanted to recommit his life. And I baptized him. And as we were walking away, and we both were very emotional, I said, Dad, what was that all about? And he said, he said Ron, I, I want what you have. What prayer was that? He saw the Holy Spirit working in my life in a way he wanted for himself. That was very affirming. The prayer number three about the and trusting me again, trusting me again with merit, with family. There was a young lady at that camp meeting uh, by my invitation, actually, and it was Claudia Sutherland, E.A. Sutherland's great-granddaughter. We had gone to high school together, but when I first met her, my sisters brought her around. She was in grade school and I was in high school, and my sisters would do this. They'd bring their little grade school girls around to meet their high school brothers, and I thought, you know, that's not the way it works. I'm in high school. I'm not interested in any grade school girl. Well, she was in the eighth grade and I was in the ninth grade. See, there's a big difference. <laughs> one was grade school and one was high school. Well, we ended up at Little Creek Academy. We became friends and we've been friends, you know, all of, the, all of these years. And she was there at the, the camp meeting. And by the end of it, she had agreed to go with me on a date. We decided to go back to Little Creek Homecoming for their... Uh, uh, for the weekend. I showed up at her house with my sister, who was her good friend, and she said, well, why did you bring your sister? I said, now, Claudia, I'm a pastor, and we're going out of town for the weekend. We need a chaperone. You brought your sister. I said, yeah, she's your good friend, and yeah, she's my sister, and she's a good chaperone. And she was a good chaperone. She knew when to disappear. She also seemed to know when to reappear. She was a good chaperone for the weekend. The three of us had a great date that weekend. But my sister came to me 
one morning and said, you should have heard what Claudia said yesterday, last night. I said, what? She said, oh, I probably shouldn't tell you. And I don't know why you women do that to us men. If you shouldn't tell us, then don't bring it up, right? We, we don't understand that kind of reasoning. But anyway, she finally said, okay, I'm going to tell you. Last night, Claudia said, I don't know what your, your brother is up to, but I wish he'd hurry up. I thought, hurry up? This is our first date. But to me, it was a green light. Our camp meeting had been October 22. Homecoming was two weeks later. Two weeks later was Thanksgiving. I invited her back to our home for Thanksgiving, where I took her out for a long walk in the beautiful woods and nature and, and proposed to her. <laughs> she looked at me and she started laughing, and I wasn't expecting that kind of a reaction. Because in my mind, I'm hearing, hurry up. Well, I was hurrying up. So what was the problem? And she said, Ronnie, I always knew you were slow, but I never thought it'd take you 30 years. You know I've been in love with you since the eighth grade. <laughs> well, who knew? So I guess that was her yes. And we planned our wedding for December 31, New Year's Eve. And um, she called me before the wedding and said, Ron, there's a marimba set up here at the church. I want you to play for our wedding. Well, I hadn't been playing marimba for years. But she insisted I showed up the day before the wedding. I picked up the four mallets. I played the Lord's Prayer, bless this house, the green cathedral, a perfect day. And the next day I played for our wedding. The Lord restored that. It was like riding a bicycle immediately. And I've been a concert musician with marimba for years since then. Anyway, the Lord answered prayer number four. I now had family. My wife had uh, a son. She was a, a single mother. She had lost her husband, and she had a son, and I now had a family, and I was praising the Lord for answering all these prayers. Two years later, the Lord was still answering prayers, and I wasn't even praying them anymore, but he was still answering. You get the point. We had a midwife visiting, and the midwife asked me if there were any twins in my side of the family. She'd already asked Claudia. We both denied that there were any twins, and we were alarmed, and both of our mothers came in grinning from ear to ear and started announcing all the twins they knew of in our history. Claudia has a sense of humor, but she pointed that finger at me and she was dead serious. Ronnie, it's time for you to stop praying for those second chances and double portions. Well, a few months later, Zachary was born. He was not a twin. It was a false alarm. And uh, 19 months later, Natalie was born and she was not a twin either. <clears throat> the Lord blessed us with two more uh, beautiful children. Nineteen months later, Claudia was due for another one. But she became very ill during that pregnancy and um, with a convulsive cough for a couple weeks. And it, it terminated the pregnancy. And then the midwife helping us through all of that came and said, Ron, Claudia, I've got to tell you, there were three. She was carrying triplets. We lost triplets. Um, we buried them under the dogwood tree there by our driveway. And that's where we hope to be on resurrection morning because we are claiming those three for eternity because we were very excitedly looking forward to one more. The other two were a bonus, right? But just a couple pictures of, of our children and uh, Claudia's son and his, his little boy who had a liver transplant when he was 15 months old because of uh, liver cancer as an infant. Um, my oldest, we've had beautiful reconciliation with my first wife. Her husband is a retired chaplain. My oldest daughter, 47 years old now, and her son there in the red graduation gown. 
Claudia and Melanie were pregnant at the same time. So I have a son and a grandson the same age. I think that's kind of cool. Um, and then my son and his, my oldest son and his little family. Uh, here's my stepson, Derek, Zachary, and Natalie. And of course, uh, time changes things. <laughs> and Claudia and I more recently. But I want to close here with, with this about my parents. We're gonna do a little quiz to close. Um, how old was my dad when he had his heart attack? You remember? What's that? 55, that's correct. And he was to be dead by the age of 60. They went to Yuchi Pines to get immersed in the health message. And my father has passed away now. How old do you think he might have been? What? 90. Exactly. 90. I didn't think to do the math until, you know, uh, this last year. I started, I started thinking, you know, the doctors gave him five years to live. God gave him 35 years to live. That's seven times five. God's plan gave dad seven times what the surgeon had, uh, the prognosis of the surgeon. I just think there's something significant about that. God's health message is for a reason, isn't it? So the last 20 years of his life, he was my most ardent supporter and closest friend. Um, I remember holding his hand the day he passed away. He couldn't talk. He had, uh, he had heart, congestive heart failure and he was having a spell and he couldn't talk. So he just reached out and grabbed my hand and we just did hands. That's the way we communicated before he died. And I look forward to the resurrection to see my dad. My mother's still living, but she's just hanging on by a thread. She's had several strokes. She's 90, she'll be 95 next month, 95. And, um, but anyway, uh, caring for my dad in his last days with Alzheimer's and so forth broke her health. But if you'd read 1 Timothy 1, you'll see the Apostle Paul talking, marveling that God put someone like him into the ministry who was a blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. He said, he claimed he did what he did in unbelief. And I thought, yeah, right. You were in the general conference, the Sanhedrin. How can you claim unbelief? And then I realized he thought he was doing God's service by persecuting the Christians. He really did do it in unbelief. When I left the church, I left in unbelief as well. It's God who called me to ministry. It's not something I aspired to uh, on my own. But, but Paul says, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful and saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Can you see I relate to that? And why? He says, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. You see Paul's conversion, wouldn't you call it an extreme conversion? And when that fellow came to me and said, Pastor Ron, if God can save you, he can save anybody. Extreme conversion. I say, amen. An extreme conversion simply reveals an extreme God. Extreme love, extreme compassion, extreme mercy.
and extreme power. I recommend Jesus to you tonight. He is the answer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for one more opportunity to share with others what you've done for me in my life and uh, the way you have chosen to use me in spite of my past. Lord, we just pray that through our stories, Mike's story, my story, our messages this week, that our, uh, those attending the meetings will realize more the power that you offer to those that Jesus died for. There is nothing too difficult for you. You do specialize in reaching the unreachable and changing the unchangeable. Your whole plan of salvation is about restoring us to your original plan. And we pray that you will help us to cooperate with that effort, that we may live to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.